From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Kathleen McGettigan is back at the head of the Office of Personnel Management on an acting basis. She's serving as acting director of OPM until the Biden administration names its nominee. FCW reports she's been chief management officer at the agency after serving as acting director at the beginning of the Trump administration. Chief Financial Officers Act agencies have a Friday deadline to submit updated pandemic plans to the Office of Management and Budget. A list of principles from OMB is supposed to be the basis of the plans. GovExec reports a task force will review and finalize the plans with agencies after they hand them in. Shrinking budgets shouldn't stop the Army's modernization efforts, according to one of its leaders. The commander of Army Futures Command, General John Murray, says his force can't, quote, afford to pass up this opportunity to continue its modernization. FedScoop reports Murray says the first coders in the command's software factory are now on the job. A link to the Trump administration's National Artificial Intelligence Initiative office is now a dead link on the White House's website. Agencies are far enough along, though, with AI that the Biden administration will have to deal with AI eventually. Sharon Hayes is chief technology officer at LMI. She's former associate director and deputy director for science at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the Office of Management and Budget. Sharon, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do we know, if anything, about what the Biden administration wants to do or plans to do with AI, understanding they've only been in office for about a week? Right. I think I think we're really kind of reading the tea leaves here at this point in terms of what the Biden administration will do. But um, there's some there's some strong signs that point to, I think, more research and development funding um, going particularly to non-defense agencies such as National Science Foundation, National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology. Um, I expect to see more coordination among agencies. Um, I think they'll make good use of the National AI Initiative Office. Um, that was created at the very end of the Trump administration. Um, it's required by law, so um, I think they will carry on and, and use that very effectively. Um, I think we'll see continued emphasis on AI as a technology with real importance um, in the geopolitical arena. In other words, staying ahead of um, ch uh, China and other countries like that. And then they're going to have to focus on the policy issues. There's some really sticky issues around AI. What makes sense to keep? You mentioned that the uh, office that I referenced in the introduction is uh, is codified in law now. That has to stick around. But policy-wise or initiative-wise, what did the Trump team do that would make sense for the Biden team to continue, even if they reshape it or redirect it a little bit? Yeah, I think there's some I think there's some good examples of uh, coordination within agencies. So the Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake, um, has done a really good job of ensuring coordination across the different services when the, in, within the Department of Defense. Um, you, you know, AI is only as good as the algorithms and the data that feed those algorithms. And so if your data is siloed across different parts of an agency, 
um, you're not going to be able to full, uh, take full advantage of, of the technology. So I think there's some good examples within agencies. And then there's a number of, of different um, policy platforms and um, institutional organizations that I think will help the Biden administration get off to a running start. You mentioned the Jake, and it was interesting to me that the Jake became a center of excellence through the General Services Administration because until the Jake, I think it was the third or fourth COE, and the previous ones, one could argue, GSA went and helped the other organizations because they were in, they, they needed help. They were in some sort of trouble. Nobody believed that or believes that about the Jake. What's the significance of that, if anything, in your mind, about what uh, civilian agencies might be able to do in partnership with the Jake for their AI efforts? Yeah, I think, um, in fact, I think that this um, this coordination initiative um, is, is really going to be key to that. Um, what organizations like that do is bring together agencies from across the federal government so that they can learn from each other, um, not repeat each other's mistakes, not, um, not work on top of each other and reinvent the wheel. So I think in bringing together um, those agencies under that initiative, um, they'll be able to really learn from what the Jake has done, um, but also you know, what other agencies are doing on the research and development front and, and so forth. What's the significance that you see in agencies choosing chief artificial intelligence officers? Is that maybe a, a shiny object that people are pursuing, or is that something significant and that person will be a, a, an important contributor to what's going on in the C-suite of these organizations, like a chief data officer and others? Yeah, I, I think it can be. Um, I think that uh, you know some organizations, some agencies are are big enough that that makes sense. Other ones, um, it may make more sense to wrap all of that under the purview of the the CIO um, or, like you said, a, a, a chief data officer if if they already exist. So it's going to depend from agency to agency and the complexity of the AI issues that they're dealing with. What are the building blocks that you would like to see either individual agencies or the the government enterprise as a whole? build in order to kind of do this from a holistic uh, viewpoint rather than building silos as we've seen myriad technology issues over the years, Sharon? Yeah, I think there's a number of, of tools in place actually that the Biden administration can, can really leverage to help do that. So um, the, the chief of the um, Office of Science and Technology Policy has already been um, identified. Um, and um, and that position has been raised to a cabinet level, which is a really powerful signal in terms of um, science and technology in general within the Biden administration. Um, but within the Office of uh, Science and Technology Policy, they have um, access to what's called the National um, Science and Technology Council, which is uh, a presidential level organization of agencies um, that can be brought together to, to solve problems. Um, add to that the President's Council Advisors on Science and Technology, which again, um, President Biden has already identified the, the leads of, of that important advisory committee, which brings um, not just government agencies together, but importantly, brings people from outside the government in so that um, they're, getting, uh, they're getting advice from the private sector and academia as well. We have about 30 seconds left, Sharon. What I'm hearing you say there is we don't need to create some kind of artificial intelligence council or some kind of new thing. We have the things in place to try to start to work on these problems. That's right. And I think the, the, the main things that they're going to need to address are 
continued implementation. Um, so, you know, things like the Jake will help there, but rationalize what agencies already have and what they need and their acquisition strategies. Um, focus on creating what's next, the research and development that's going to drive AI into the future through agencies like the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy and others, and then wrangle with the policy issues. I think the time has come. There's There's been a lot of talk about uh, regulation in this sphere. Um, I think that's something that they're they're actually going to have to grapple with and are ready to. Sharon Hayes, great insight. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Up next, a bigger bite for federal contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who pays exactly for a higher minimum wage? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Contractors for the federal government would have to pay their employees uh, at least $15 an hour under a new executive order. The minimum now is $10.80. So overhead on some contracts could go up as much as 50%. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. Stan, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you again. I'm, I'm a little confused by this. I read the text. Explain to me, does this apply to contracts that are already in force? Aren't they already negotiated? Aren't they already done deals? Or is this a moving forward, we're going to do this? Is this a, a, a spirit of the administration? Yeah. What does this mean exactly? Well, it, it's not more. It's more than the spirit of the administration, but it does not apply to contracts currently in place. It could conceivably apply to some option years, but I, I think it's more going to be new awards. Um, and it doesn't apply to where there are collective bargaining agreements and so forth. And so, you know, we're not talking about overhead costs. You're talking about direct labor costs here, um, build on government contracts. Uh, and you know, this is not a huge surprise. We, we, this was coming. This is something that President Biden had talked about a lot during the campaign. I think its impact, you're not going to get a lot of opposition from industry uh, because there are a lot of folks, an increasing number of folks in industry who think the Service Contract Act, under which these wages are prescribed, um, it tends to suppress wages as much as it does to help keep wages at a reasonable level, which was at its original goal. Um, and I, I think that the, the, the more significant opposition is going to come from some folks who just don't believe in the $15 wage, but also some internal opposition from agencies for the reason you mentioned, which is it's going to increase costs. However, uh, we don't yet know all the details, but it, it appears that they're going to do it the way we've done previous increases in, this, in the minimum wage, as President Obama did about 10 years ago. And that is to do it over several years to phase it in so it will not be immediate uh, and, and, and it will take effect. I think the, the, the real complicating question is going to be less those folks who are making between the 1080 and 15 because that number of people is not enormous, but it's obviously impactful because they're the most vulnerable on the wage scale. It's going to be what happens if you're somebody, let's just I'm making these positions up. You're an operator one at a call center and you're making 1250 and you're an operator two with a little bit added responsibility at the same call center with more experience you're making 14. Do you both now make 15 or does the $14 go up to 16 or 17? And then what happens is you go up the, the whole ladder of salaries. And I think over a number of years, as DOL has to deal with wage determinations, you're going to have to see an upward pressure, which is part of the objective of the administration. You've already taken away the answer to my next question, which was going to be, who are the people that are in that 1080 to $15 cohort and what's the implication for them? So I'll go to the third question of this conversation, which is what, how does this pertain to the companies that need to plan for this moving forward? Since it's phased in, they don't need to do this tomorrow necessarily, but as they're bidding and as they're preparing to change financial management systems and all that kind of stuff, what are the steps to consider there? 
Well, I think it's 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 it, it can be a slightly complicating factor as it's going up in terms of just getting the data. But remember again, the Service Contract Act, which is where these wages are going to through which these wages will be prescribed, um, defines what the wage levels are. And so, when when you have a when you're bidding on a contract, if you know that there's a, a wage increase coming, or you try to get a wage determination from DOL, it will reflect these increases. So I don't I don't think that in and of itself. Is going to be massively difficult. It's 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 happened in the past. As I said, the more complicated question with this is going to be what happens as the ripple effect upward uh, on the system. That's 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 I think where the, some of the challenges is. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just going to make it more complicated. We chatted a minute before we went on the air about the Buy America Executive Order Two, and before we get to the the particulars of that. I wonder if there is any concern or reason for concern in the contracting community about uh, contracting policymaking by executive order. Is it a big deal? Is it something companies should be concerned about? Or is this just, do you have a sense this is a few things that the president wants to take care of early on and then attention will turn to other things? Well, I think it's it's largely the latter, but, but it's also not unusual. Uh, anytime you have, the minimum wage is a great example, obviously, and then uh, by America is a, is another example. When a, an administration wants to implement a policy priority, one of the places they can do it most immediately is the area they control, which is federal procurement. That typically doesn't require legislation. So if you want to go more broadly, it might require legislative changes and so forth, and that can obviously delay or prevent your policy priority. So we see this in every administration. None of us are real big fans of, of governing by EO, but it's, there, it's not unusual, and I don't think either of these would fall into that unusual category. All right, a little bit more than a minute left, Stan. What do you make of the Buy America EO? Uh, I think it's very consistent with what President Biden said during the campaign. It is very much a kind of let's review, assess, and move forward. There's, there's not a lot of uh, goal setting. I think it's actually, I, I think in some ways it's very well written in that it sets forth an objective but it doesn't presume the outcomes. It gives opportunity for comment. There's a lot of analytics to be involved. Two things that it does do, or uh, one thing that it does and one that it doesn't do that is interesting to me. One is it does raise the issue for the first time in Buy America of commercial items and information technology, which have been exempt. Um, it leaves open the door to not include them, but it at least raises the question of whether they should be included. And that is something when you think about global supply chains, it's no place in the marketplace is that more obvious than with those. The second thing is, people have, including the president, have conflated the issue of company ownership and U.S. jobs. And so when they talk about 30 or 40 percent more foreign-owned companies getting U.S. work, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the Huawei's of the world or are we talking about BAE systems and CGI and companies that happen to be foreign-owned but whose employees are all U.S.? In the executive order itself, it does talk in terms, it uses the terms U.S. economic supporting positions. So that seems to me to say that the rhetoric aside, they recognize that the issue now is not really foreign ownership, it's where the work is done and who's doing it. Stan Soloway, thanks very much as always, great to see you. My pleasure, Francis, thank you. Up next, tracking the defense budget under President Biden. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what a defense budget cut would mean for Pentagon operations. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration is about to dig into its first defense budget cycle. Most observers believe that budget will be smaller than the past decade or so. The Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and the Ronald Reagan Institute say a major defense spending cut 
would have lasting impacts on the country's readiness and ability to carry out the national defense strategy. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute, former general counsel and deputy staff director of the House Armed Services Committee. Thomas Mankin is president, chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, former deputy assistant secretary of defense for policy planning. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. Tom, I start with you. Do we even know yet exactly what the national defense strategy should look like or will look like in the new administration to have a sense of how the budget should hew to it? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you as always. Um, look, strictly the answer is no, but I would certainly expect large elements of continuity with the existing national defense strategy. Uh, the environment that we live in is one you know, characterized by competition with China and Russia. Those are looming challenges that the Biden administration is is going to need to address, and I would guess will be uh, you know front and center when uh, when they develop and release their national defense strategy. Roger, the other uh, factor here is uh, your old stomping grounds of Capitol Hill. We have new leadership on, on in the House Armed Services Committee, a new uh, ranking Republican member, uh, new leadership, and and new power players in the Appropriations Committees on both sides of the Hill. How important is that change, is that uh, difference in worldview to what a, a budget will actually look like? One thing for the administration to ask for something, another thing for them to actually get it. Yeah, and the new leadership in the Congress is an unknown how it will impact. But as you know, really drive what the president in defense budget generally is what the president will get with some marginal impact by the Congress. More, or, however, as we looked at study uh, and tool CSBA, is that Bernie Sanders is now going to chair the Budget Committee in the Senate, and uh, he's proposed in the past a 10% cut uh, to defense budget, something that people in the Democratic leadership in the Senate have actually embraced. So it could be quite impactful. Tom, you looked specifically at that number. What do you see and how easy or hard is it to predict where the 10 percent would come from to be able to think about what it means? Well, look, when, when you get to uh, something as, as large as a 10 percent cut, frankly, there's only a few places uh, that you can go uh, to, generate the, uh, to generate savings uh, of that magnitude, right? So what we saw uh, in the exercises that we ran was uh, modernization gets cut. Um, and as much as uh, the participants would like to to speed up modernization, would like to preserve, to, to, to cut older systems and preserve newer ones, at that level, you just can't do it. Um, personnel get cut, gets cut very, very heavily. Um, and ground forces, ground presence get gets cut very heavily as well. And these are all things that historically have been uh, politically unpalatable. I, I, Roger, I want to refer folks, rather than talking more about the nuts and bolts of this in the time that we have left, I want to refer folks to csbaonline.org where they can go and read this for themselves. Um, and, and explain to me the methodology here, because this is not the typical think tank, we send a bunch of research associates out to come up with a bunch of spreadsheets. You went about this dramatically differently, it seems to me, than most of these exercises happen in Washington. Describe that a bit for me, Roger. Yeah, I mean, I'll let Tom expand on the actual tool, but suffice to say, CSBA has come up with a very 
sophisticated budget tool. And we brought together, that is CSBA and the Reagan Institute, um, over two sessions, a large number of former policymakers, budget experts, industry people to really wade in and see how could you actually do this, actually make the puts and takes to try to arrive at a 10% cut. Tom just gave you the impact uh, and how difficult it was to do that. But this wasn't one or two or three people opining. They actually went in and tried to carry out the task at hand, and the results were quite devastating. Tom, that was what struck me as I as I walked through this. That the, as I said, this is not no disrespect to research assistants because they're great, but the 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 firepower here was what uh, impacted me. Uh, that made me think this is something that people should really pay attention to. Tell me about what, what Roger mentioned there about how you walk through this. Yeah, no, thanks. We we've developed over years uh, a proprietary strategic choices tool, which is a an instantiation of the of the FIDIP and then a, a notional you know, FIDIP beyond that. So it allows uh, participants, it allows users to make choices and actually be able to project the budgetary impact of those choices, not just in terms of acquisition, but also the associated manpower costs. Uh, and it does so in a very user-friendly way. So yeah, in, in, instead of just hand-waving, you actually get down to uh, to hard dollars and 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 tough strategic choices. I, we're we have about thirty seconds left, Tom, and I know this isn't a thirty second question. I apologize, but is there any scenario where a cut of that size isn't damaging, isn't impactful in a very negative way in your view? Uh, no, I mean I, I think what we found was that a cut of that magnitude uh, brings us to strategic insolvency, uh, an inability to carry out the national defense strategy and really narrows uh, the scope of, of U.S. power to a, to a dangerous extent. Tom Mankin, Roger Zakheim, thanks very much. I appreciate your time today. Always a pleasure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You get it by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.